Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series is called The Kingdom. Over the next four weeks of Advent, in anticipation of Jesus' birth, we're going to talk about where this idea of God's kingdom came from and why Jesus is the one who finally brought the kingdom of God to fruition in our lives. I hope you enjoy. As we gather back together, our first reading today comes from 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 21. Listen for God's word. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their youths with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or young woman, the aged or the feeble. He gave them all into his hand, all the vessels of the house of God, large and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officials, all these he brought to Babylon. They burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 45, 1 to 4. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes, to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. I will go before you and level the mountains. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches hidden in secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. This is the word of the Lord. So during the season of Advent, we are doing a sermon series called The Kingdom. Each week, we are going to be looking at where this idea of the God's kingdom came from in the New Testament. And we're going to be exploring why Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom to fruition in our lives. This sermon series, the way it works is the first half pretty much deals with the history of some influence on Jesus' understanding of the kingdom in the New Testament. And in the second half, we talk about how this leads us into the foundation of our spiritual journey as Christians. So last week, we began by talking about how Jesus, who talks about the kingdom of God a lot, is that true? Does he talk about the kingdom of God a lot? Yes, he does. Even if you don't know that, he does. So... Just go with it. So he does. He talks about the kingdom of God a lot. 
but we discussed this notion that it didn't actually start with him. That this notion of God's kingdom, it was part of the Jewish religion long before Jesus was born. And so we went back to the very first influence on Jesus' understanding of the kingdom in the New Testament, and that is the kingdom of Israel. So we talked about how Israel, at its zenith, there were two kings who they looked back on as the greatest moment in Israel's history. It was King David and King Solomon. They ruled for about 70 years. And it's during this time that Israel, it was this autonomous state that was wealthy, privileged, and feared. And by the time you get to Jesus' day, which is like a thousand years later, people are desiring to get back to that moment. They want to see a new David rise up. They want to see a new king who's going to raise an army and get Israel back to its former glory. So that's what we talked about last week. This week we're moving into the second influence on Jesus' understanding of the kingdom. And this influence comes to us from the prophet Isaiah. But before we can get into all this, let's return to our timeline, shall we? So last week, we went through about 1,100 years of history. We went from 2,000 B.C. all the way down to 931. And essentially, what we looked at is how Israel goes from being a bunch of nomadic tribes all the way to forming the kingdom of Israel, which then gets split in half into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is where we ended up, 931. Now, before we move on with more history, I'd like to take a moment to explain a semantic issue to you, which perhaps has never been explained to you in all your time being in church. But it's an important thing, and I figure, you know what, this is a good time for me to do it right now. So, when you get to Jesus, do we refer to Jesus as an Israelite? Do we call him an Israelite? What do we call Jesus? Jesus was a Jew. a Jew, right? Now, interesting. Why do we call him a Jew? Well, that term Jew comes from the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, that's where it comes from. That's why we use the word Judah or Judaism, right? The J-U-D, that's how we get into that. Now, the question that you should ask is, well, why is he a Jew and not an Israelite? Well, we're going to talk about today how essentially that northern kingdom of Israel, that goes away. That gets taken out. And so what happens is this group of people who form the southern kingdom of Judah, they carry on their identity for many centuries after the kingdom of Israel is gone. And because they are able to maintain this identity all the way through the centuries to where Jesus is, that's why we call him a Jew. And it's why today we refer to his religion as Judaism. That's what he followed when he was alive. So I just wanted to tell you about that because I thought, you know what? These two terms, they're used interchangeably, Israelite and Jew. And when somebody tells you that you know, they're an Israelite, what that's referring to is the ancient history of Israel. They're connected to each other, but they're part of it. And the Israelites, they're the older version. The Jews are the more modern version. Make sense? I just thought I'd tell you that because, you know, hey, I got a chance and the map's right there, so let's just do it, right? Okay. So 931, if you got your little thing here, you can follow along with me as we go along. It'll be on the maps up there too. You'll want to look at the maps because that helps out. So not long after this, Adad Narari, who is part of the Assyrian Empire, he ends up forming this Assyrian Empire. So 
We have Israel, Judah, and you can see up here on the map, you see how far away those two places are? Okay, well here's the thing, the Assyrian Empire, it's gonna grow very rapidly. And over the next 200 years, it's just gonna gobble up nation after nation after nation. And eventually, it's gonna grow so large that by 722 BC, it will have made its way down to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrian army, they were pretty good. So they essentially obliterate the northern kingdom of Israel. It's gone. Now the southern kingdom, what's interesting, is that they are left intact. And this happens for a number of different reasons. I'm not going to get into all those reasons this morning. But essentially what you need to know is that they become indentured servants to the Assyrians. Now, this is a better deal for them because Israel in the north... What happens to them is they all get killed. They get wiped out. And anyone who's left over gets enslaved. So it's not bad for them that they become indentured servants because they're given a little bit of autonomy down there. They're ruled by them, but they can stay where they are. Over the next 100 years, the nation or the Assyrian Empire, it will continue to grow. Look at how big it gets. It eventually gets out to that point. Judah's just one little small part of this massive empire. And this is the way that it remains. They're in this state of limbo. Judah's in the state of limbo for this next hundred years until the Assyrian Empire begins to go to war with the Babylonian Empire. And this begins when the city of Babylon wins its independence from the Assyrian Empire. Now, you see that little red dot right there in the middle of that? That red dot is going to grow real fast. And by 612 B.C., they will have taken over the entire area right there and they will have cut off, you can see how they end up cutting off the north and the south to the point where the Assyrian Empire it can't function any longer. And the Babylonians, they take over. Now what you have to appreciate is that the Assyrians, they were a very violent people. But the Babylonians were much, much worse. And so, what happens is by... 586, the Babylonians have made their way down into the kingdom of Judah. And they are not going to let them remain as indentured servants. They come in, and the king at that time was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in, and he absolutely devastates Jerusalem. Comes in and destroys them. In fact, that's what we read about today in 2 Chronicles. Let's take a look at what it says about the destruction of Jerusalem. Therefore God brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their youths with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or young woman, the aged or the feeble. God gave them all into his hands. Now it's important for you to appreciate just how devastating this event was for the people of Judah. Under the Assyrians, yes, they were indentured servants, but... They were not slaves. And now when Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the Babylonians, he works his way in there. And of course, what does he do? He's not going to let them live an autonomous life. He's not going to let them just be in their homeland and worship their gods. No, he's going to kill them. And the reason why is because the way he operated, his philosophy of rule was that you are going to bow down to me in total and complete submission. I want utter control over you. And the way that he achieved this was by destroying everything that was dear to you. 
Look at what it says here in 2 Chronicles. They burn the house of God. That's the temple. The most important thing in Judaism. They burn it down. Broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Burned all its palaces with fire. And destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his sons. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's a bad dude. (laughs) Bad guy. And... What you have to appreciate is that for the Jewish people, Nebuchadnezzar's rule represents what became known in Judaism as the first exile. And you can see that word. You see he took into exile in Babylon. It becomes known as the first exile, the first time that the Jewish people are scattered away from their homeland. And this exile, it will last for 47 years until the Persian Empire comes in and takes over the Babylonians. All right, now we've just talked a lot about a lot of people taking over a lot of people. Let's just make sure that we understand what's going on. You got your little card there? Did you take it home like I told you not to? (laughs) Because I know some of you did. All right, 931, that's where it starts, right? The two kingdoms, that's where we started this morning. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Then Assyria comes in. In 722, they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria continues to grow all the way until the Babylonians take it over. Then the Babylonians, after taking over, they destroy Jerusalem in the south in 586. And then, eventually, the Persians come in and they destroy the Babylonians. It's not really all that complicated. It's just a bunch of new people coming in saying, hey, guess what? This is mine. That's essentially what they're doing, right? Okay. So, when the Persian Empire, when it defeats the Babylonian Empire, you see how big that is? See how huge that is? It goes over way further. Like, if I got a map, it keeps going if you keep going to the east. So, it's much bigger than just even that. So, once this happens in 539, something remarkable occurs. Because the leader of the Persian Empire was a man known as Cyrus the Great, or Cyrus II. So Cyrus, he is very different from Nebuchadnezzar. He has a very different philosophy of rule. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar was going to make you bend to his will, that was not the way Cyrus operated. Cyrus did not say, you have to bend to my will. You don't have to do what I say. Indeed, he said, You can be whoever you are. You can worship your own gods. And he goes to his entire nation and he says, if you were enslaved by the Babylonians, you can go home. You don't have to be a slave anymore. You can leave. And on top of all of that, I'll even help you with the costs of rebuilding your homeland. If the Babylonians came in and destroyed your city, I'll help you rebuild it. Now, can you imagine what this would have meant to the Jewish people? Can you imagine what it would have meant to all these other people who were enslaved? This would be a big deal. You would be very grateful to this king, Cyrus. You would look at him and you would say, wow, this is the first time in 200 years that our people have felt any kind of relief from oppression. In a very real sense, Cyrus was the savior of the Jewish people, because he saved them from their oppression. Indeed, 
When you get to Isaiah, and Isaiah is talking about King Cyrus, that is the first time that you see this word Messiah used. It's used in reference to Cyrus. Now, what does the word Messiah mean? Do you know? Anointed. anointed one. Anointed one. So, Messiah means anointed one. And let me just tell you in case you didn't know, the whole concept behind the Messiah or this concept of anointed one is that in the Middle East, what would happen is that when a king would go through their coronation ceremony, they would have oil poured on their head, and this would symbolize that they had come to power. Now, knowing that, I want you to take a look at what Isaiah has to say about Cyrus. Take a look. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes to open doors before him. Now that word, when you see that word anointed, do you see it up there? Anointed? That is the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. So what I'm trying to tell you is that Cyrus, king of Persia, is the first Messiah for the Jewish people. He's the Messiah. Now, what is, why is he the Messiah? Because of what, as Isaiah says, he says, because God took Cyrus and used him as an instrument to defeat these foreign powers that were oppressing the Jewish people to bring them peace. Now, why I find this to be fascinating is because Cyrus, he's not Jewish, is he? Well, you probably can just assume he's not Jewish if he's from Persia, right? So, he's not Jewish. Because I think as Christians, don't you assume that when you hear that word Messiah, at the very least, the guy is going to be Jewish, right? I mean, that would be what you would assume. Or, when you hear about the Messiah in Isaiah, you're thinking it's going to be somebody in the future? Not so. When he's talking about the Messiah, he's not talking about somebody in the future. He's talking about somebody who existed at that time. He's talking about Cyrus. So, Cyrus, he's not Jewish. In fact, Cyrus, he subscribed to a religion known as Zoroastrianism, which is very hard to say. I'm going to tell you right now. Now, don't check out on me because I know as soon as some of you see this word, you're like, I'm done. I was with you on the maps, Alex, but I'm done with Zoroastrianism, okay? I don't even know what this means. I don't care. But here's the thing. Zoroastrianism, very important. It had a huge influence on the Jewish religion. So what was Zoroastrianism? Well, it's the oldest monotheistic faith in the world. The oldest. It's older than Judaism. Much older. And they believed that there were two forces at work in the universe. The force of order and the force of chaos. And these two forces, they were fighting with each other at all times for control of the universe. And generally speaking, the force of chaos was winning. But the Zoroastrian scriptures which are much older than our scriptures, they prophesied that God was going to send a Savior who would destroy the forces of chaos. And in the Zoroastrian scriptures, they referred to the Savior as the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, and the Morning Star. That's how they talked about Him. And the Savior, 
he was going to usher in a cosmic renovation where he would restore order to the entire universe. And this cosmic renovation, it was known as the kingdom of God in the Zoroastrian scriptures. And what would happen is God was going to merge heaven with earth and bring about an everlasting peace. Does this sound a little bit familiar to you? A little bit? Now let's go back to Cyrus real quick. This is important. So Cyrus, what you have to realize is that this guy is super smart. He was very, very politically savvy. And this is what he told the members of his empire. He said to them, he said, I am the Savior who God was sending to save you all from the forces of chaos. And how did he frame it? He said, look, look, there are all of these countries out there, these massive nations, Babylon, the Assyrians, right? They are these power-hungry nations, and guess what I'm here to do? I'm here to come in and defeat them. I'm here to come in and to vanquish them. So I use violence, and with that violence, I bring about peace. And you want to know how Cyrus referred to himself? You know what he called himself? He called himself the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, and the Morning Star. All descriptors, by the way, that you see in Isaiah that are associated with the Messiah. These things are a reference to Cyrus, things that he said about himself. So when you get to Jesus in the New Testament, and he's talking about how in God's kingdom, God's going to merge heaven with earth, vanquish the evil from the world with the Messiah, what you have to realize is that this is a direct influence as a result of Cyrus and Zoroastrianism. A direct influence. The Jews simply incorporated all of this into their religion because they were so grateful to King Cyrus for freeing them from their oppression and allowing them to go back to their homeland. You with me so far? Kind of? A little bit? Here? There? Everywhere? Okay. All right. So that's the history part. Let's get into the spiritual part. Because I think that if Cyrus's kingdom represents this idea that there's chaos in the world and he's going to bring peace, I think that that's something that we all need in our lives. Would you agree? All right. So the question we're going to ask is, if we're going to bring Cyrus's kingdom into our hearts, I think the question is, how do we take that little piece of love and goodness and calm that God can give us in our hearts, how do we bring that from our hearts into the world? And that's a very hard question to answer, isn't it? I'm going to tell you something about myself. There are times when I feel so much chaos in the world, when I feel so much chaos in my body and in my mind that I feel like I'm going to collapse in on myself. Do you ever feel that way? Where the chaos is so great? You know, the way that I think of myself when that's happening, when it feels like this is what's occurring in my life, I feel like one of those ropes and all of the threads, they've been cut, and the only thing that's left is this little piece of twine in the middle that's like holding it all together. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm saying? That's how I feel a lot of the time. 
And I think for a lot of us, we have trouble admitting that we feel this way. Because life, as beautiful as it can be, I think for many, many people, myself included, it is just very hard sometimes to do the basic things that are required of us to get through our days. I think sometimes it can be hard just to go through the motions of doing all of that stuff. That it can feel overwhelming to even make it through. And you want to know where I found this to be the most true, where I really learned about this, was actually during my time when I served as a chaplain at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey. When I was preparing to become a pastor, I, I spent time at this hospital. I worked with people who were mentally ill. And I will tell you that one of the things that struck me the most about these patients was just how challenging normal day-to-day -day life was for them. What you and I do every day, where we get up in the morning, we get dressed, we eat some food, we go out about our day, that was an arduous and sometimes almost impossible task for many of the people in this hospital. Very, very hard for them. And I realized that one of the big reasons why this hospital exists is to help people relearn how to go through these basic life skills. Some of them never learned them in the first place, and they have to learn them there for the first time. And so the hospital, its job is to get your mental illness under control, but also to make sure that you have the skills that are necessary to go back out into the world so you can live on your own. And I remember when I first got there, I met this guy. He was on one of my units. He's a really nice guy. He's older. He's probably in his like, late 50s. And he used to be a, uh, an individual who was doing really well in life. He was a teacher. He had taught in the New York City school system. And he had actually done really well. He'd won a bunch of awards because he had been named like Teacher of the Year and all this stuff for his district, which is a big deal up in New York. That's, that's hard to do. That school system is massive. But in his late 40s, early 50s, he'd had a bunch of things happen to him. He'd had some deaths in his family. His relationships had kind of fallen apart. And it became hard for him to function. He couldn't just get through his day-to-day -day life. It was really hard for him just to kind of be in the world. And so he struggled. He struggled to get up. He struggled to just do the basic things. And he decompensated to the point where he couldn't function any longer. And he eventually started a fire in his apartment. And that's why he ended up in the hospital. But by the time I met him, he'd been there for quite a while. And they'd gotten him back to this point where he was level. He was doing really, really well. You could talk to him. He was lucid. You could have all kinds of conversations. And the doctors, they said, okay, we feel good. We're ready for you to go back out into the world. We got you an apartment. You're going to be okay. So they send him out. And everything feels good. And then less than a month later, I come back on the unit. And there he is. He's on the floor. And I get down and I'm like, Robert, what are you doing here? And just vacant. There's nothing there. He's totally gone. He's just looking at you. He doesn't recognize who I am. He can't even speak. I mean, it's really, really sad. And so I went up to his doctor and I asked him, I said, what happened? What went on? He said, well, he got home and things went well for the first couple of weeks. Things were okay. But then the stress of life, the chaos, all that stuff, it started to really close in on him and it broke his spirits. And he just couldn't handle it anymore. 
And eventually he fell back into that same pattern and it got to the point where he couldn't even function anymore. And they said, that's how we found him. We found him the way that you see him right now. And we brought him back to the hospital. And so the doctor walks away and I'm looking down at him and I think to myself, could I end up like that? I mean, here I am, I'm 38. Things seem to be going pretty well for me. But he's only 10 years older than me when all that stuff started to happen to him. I mean, could you get to a point where enough dominoes fall that you can't get back up anymore? Have you ever thought about that? Is that something you've ever wondered about? I mean, that's something I think about all the time after seeing him. And I have to tell you that I think all of us, if we're being honest, we felt that at some point in time and we wondered, is it going to crush us? And it can come from all kinds of different sources. Sometimes it can be external, right? It can be things in the world around us that we have no control over that come in at us. Sometimes it's internal. Sometimes it's in your body and in your mind. But I will tell you that the most challenging thing that I face when I feel that happening to me and I can't control it is that I don't want to ask for help because I'm supposed to be strong, right? I'm supposed to be able to take on the world, not supposed to show that anything's wrong. I got to make sure that I'm impenetrable to everything around me. And so I hold back and I hold back and I hold back and I try to keep it all at bay. And eventually, when it gets to be too much, I sit there and I pray. And I ask God, I say, God, can you please just give me a little bit of peace so that I can get through these next few moments? Can you just help me get through the next few hours? Because I don't know if I'm going to make it through that. And usually when I do that, I spend five, ten minutes, I pray that, and I feel this little bit of calm in my heart, and it comes out into the rest of my body. And I don't just go from there, I'm not just like, I'm all better, and then I go on with it. At that point, that's when I go and I find some help. That's what I've learned how to do. I go and I find some help. And I go to these people who I trust. I go to my wife. I go to my therapist. I go to Judy. I go to, T, uh, I go to Adam. I go to TC. I go to all of these people who I trust. And I come to them and I say, look, I'm really struggling right now, and I don't know what to do. And so we sit down, and we talk through it, and one of those people usually will give me something to help me know what I need to do, and that's when I can find that kingdom of peace again. And so if our goal is to create God's kingdom here on earth, is that our goal? Is that what we're trying to do? Then I think that we need to take a note from this, and we need to create Cyrus's kingdom in our hearts. So the next time you feel that chaos closing in around you, when you feel that, because it's going to happen in your life, don't think it won't. It will at some point in time. The next time that happens, my prayer for you is that you would reach out to God and that God might give you the courage to be able to reach out for help. That you would go to people who you know and you would say, look, I'm struggling, I need your help, I need your support, and I can't do this on my own. And if you don't have a group of people who you trust, please come to one of us. This is part of the reason why this church exists. It's why we are here. We are here to help you when you find yourself in those moments of chaos. We are here to help you when you find yourself in those moments where you don't know what to do. That is why we are here. So please come see us because there's no reason to do this on your own. You shouldn't have to go through life like that because when you do it by yourself, you do run the risk that it will crush you. Life is really hard. 
But the fact is, God gave us each other, and we can do this together. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.